Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Folds, and with me, as always, my main man and co-host, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you tonight? I'm feeling good, Folds. How are you, man? I'm doing really good. I'm excited about tonight because we're getting really back into like the wheelhouse of that everything that encompasses Subtle Beast. I mean, you know, we're talking about UFOs, we're going to be talking about aliens, we're going to be talking about other than Roswell, you know, everyone knowing that that's typically the catalyst that launched the whole UFO quote unquote conspiracy or what have you, but we're going to go into depth with some other maybe not so so known stories of uh, some close encounters that took place during the Cold War. We got some good information to go over with everyone. Um, I'm super excited to get into it, Fultz. Yeah, so without further ado, we're going to kick off uh, Cold War Encounters. Now, the uh, the uh, first information we're going to go over tonight has to do with uh, when UFOs buzzed the White House and the Air Force blamed the weather. So you know how we're going to go with this and you know what the, uh, the outlook of the government's going to be probably right off the top. Now, when a slew of saucer-like sightings were reported over Washington, D.C. in 1952, the Air Force blocked its own investigator from checking them out. Now, 1952 was the year that America caught flying saucer fever. So when a rash of strange sightings was reported in the skies over Washington, D.C. that summer, the press and public demanded answers. Were these unexplained unexplained radar blips crafts that in some cases outran jets part of a nuclear armed soviet invasion a very real threat at the height of the red scare or were they evidence of something far more mysterious the washington dc sightings of july 1952 also known as the big flap hold a special place in history of unidentified flying objects Major American newspapers were reporting multiple credible sightings by civilian and military radar operators and pilots, so many that the Special Intelligence Unit of the U.S. Air Force was sent in to investigate. What they found, or didn't find, along with the Air Force official explanation, fueled some of the earliest theories about government plot to hide evidence of alien life. An equally eye-catching headline, there is a case for interplanetary saucers. Now, there was an article written by Ruppelt's Full Cooperation that explained the Air Force's national security interest in UFOs, and it made a convincing case. Though the colorful retelling of 10 unexplained UFO incidents that these unidentified objects were extraterrestrial in origin, as one rocket scientist working on quote-unquote secret projects for the u.s told life magazine i'm completely convinced that they have an out-of-world basis now according to the washington post the number of ufo sightings reported to the air force jumped more than sixfold from 23 in march of 1952 to 148 in june now by july the precise conditions were in place for wildfire of ufo mania widespread cold war anxiety 
mainstream press coverage of unexplained UFO incidents and a healthy dose of midsummer madness. All that was needed was a spark. The mysterious radar blips, <clears throat> pardon me, buzzing over the White House. Shortly before midnight, Saturday, July 19th, 1952, Air Traffic Controller Edward Nugent at Washington National Airport spotted seven slow-moving objects on his radar screen moving from an unknown civilian or military flight, flight path. He called over his supervisor and joked about a fleet of flying saucers. At the same time, two more air traffic controllers at National spotted a strange bright light hovering in the distance that suddenly zipped away at an incredible speed. Now, at nearby Andrews Air Force Base, radar operators were getting the same unidentified blips, slow and clustered at first, then racing away at speeds of exceeding 7,000 miles per hour. Looking out his tower window, one Andrews controller saw what he described as an orange ball fire trailing a tail. A commercial pilot cruising over the Virginia and Washington, D.C. area reported six streaking bright lights like falling stars without tails. When radar operators at National watched the objects buzz past the White House and Capitol building, the UFO joke stopped. Two F-94 interceptor jets were scrambled, but each time they approached the locations appearing on the radar screen, the mysterious blips would disappear. Now by dawn of July 20th, the objects were gone. <clears throat> I tried to make contact with the bogeys. Nobody bothered to tell Ruppelt, the Air Force lead Project Blue Book investigator, about the sightings. He found out a few days later when he flew into Washington, D.C. and read news reports. Ruppelt tried to get out to the National and Andrews to interview radar operators and air traffic controllers, but was denied a government-issued car or even cab fare. Frustrated, he flew back to Ohio with nothing. The very next Saturday, the UFOs were back over the nation's capital. Again! Ruppelt found out through a phone call from a reporter and immediately called on two Air Force colleagues to check out the situation at National. The same radar blips were back, and radar operators wondered out loud if the dozens or so objects on their screens couldn't be caused by temperature inversion, a common phenomenon in D.C., hot, muggy summer months. A temperature inversion occurs when a layer of warm air forms in low atmosphere, trapping cooler air beneath. Radar signals can bounce off this layer at shallow angles and mistakenly show near-ground objects as appearing in the sky. Ruppelt's Air Force colleagues, however, were convinced that the objects on the radar screen weren't mirages, but solid aircraft. <clears throat> now, to be safe, two more F-94 jets were scrambled to chase down the unidentified targets appearing on radar screens at both National and Andrews. A game of high-speed whack-a-mole ensued, where the jets would race to location, targeted by radar, only for the blips to vanish. Finally, one of the jet pilots caught sight of a bright light in the distance and gave chase. I tried to make contact with the bogeys below 1,000 feet, the pilot later told reporters. I saw several bright lights. I was at maximum speed, but even then I had no closing speed. I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. Averting mass panic with disputed theory. The next day, newspaper headlines across America screamed, Saucers swarm over capital and jets chase DC sky ghosts. The publicity and public panic over the sightings was so great that President Harry Truman himself asked aides to get answers. When they called Ruppelt, he said, could have been caused by a temperature inversion, but more investigation was needed to be fully explained. 
because both radar images and credible eyewitness accounts were available. But before a such in-depth investigation could take place, the Air Force called a press conference, the longest such news event since World War II. The Air Force, the Air Force brass had decided, without consulting Rupelt or Project Blue Book team, that the best response to the sightings was to feed the press and public an easy-to-swallow explanation. Now, dodging specific questions about what pilots and radar operators had seen in the skies over the Capitol, Major General John Sanford came back again to the temperature inversion theory. Never mind that Rupert had since come to the opposite conclusion. The investigators had ruled out the inversion, says Alejandro Rojos, editor of the UFO news site Open Mind. They had examined that situation. The radar operator said, inversions happen. We know what inversions look like. This is not an inversion. This is not the same thing at all. To Rupelt's disappointment, the Air Force press conference worked exactly as planned. The papers reported the temperature inversion story, and the public largely seemed to accept it. Now, in his 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, Ruppelt reports that after the press conference, UFO sightings dropped from 50 a day to 10. Skeptics, however, weren't satisfied with the pat government response. Many accused Air Force and Project Blue Book investigators of devious behavior and secret knowledge. It wasn't until Project Blue Book documents were made public in 1985 that the UFO slew could see the closest thing to a government cover-up of UFO sightings in the nation's capital was actually a conspiracy of ignorance. The Washington UFO flap perfectly illustrates the real government cover-up, says Nick Pope, a UFO journalist who used to run UFO investigations unit for the British Minister Ministry of Defense. It's not a situation where the authorities conspired to keep some terrible truth about UFOs from the people, but rather the government doing its best to keep people from realizing that they didn't have all the answers. So that's the the first story we got on uh the cold war encounters and uh, if you're familiar with our social media page on facebook our uh, our cover photo is actually uh one of those flybys of those ufos going over the capitol in dc way back when um we're going to get into another great story here that uh steve wants to share with us so this one is about the first alien abduction and the account described a medical exam with a crude pregnancy test. The space creatures also got excited about dentures, according to Barney and Betty Hill's story of their 1961 close encounter investigated by the Air Force's secret UFO initiative. So, Betty and Barney Hill, who claimed to have been abducted by aliens in 1961, holding a book written about their experience in 1967 is it chasing us that thought that thought coursed through betty and barney hill's minds as they drove down the empty winding country road in new hampshire's white mountains it was a september night in 1961 they hadn't seen a car for miles and a strange light in the sky seemed to be following them when they finally got home to portsmouth at dawn they were far from relieved they felt dirty their watches had stopped working. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed, and Betty's dress was ripped. There were about two hours of the drive that neither one of them could remember. What had happened? So with the help of a psychiatrist, the quiet couple eventually revealed a startling story. 
gray beings with large eyes had walked them into a metallic disc as wide, Betty said, as her house was long. Once inside, the beings examined the couple and then erased their memories. Their experience would kick off an Air Force inquiry, part of the secretive initiative of Project Blue Book, that investigated UFO sightings across the country. The incident would also become the first ever widely publicized alien abduction account, and it would shape how stories like this were told, and how they were understood from then on. The debate continues as to whether the husband and wife were liars, fantasists, crackpots, or simply sleep-deprived people who later recovered seriously scrambled memories. Strange Lights in Pursuit The Hills Road Trip was spontaneous, a well-earned break Barney decided the couple had needed. As explained in The Interrupted Journey, a 1966 book they collaborated on with author John G. Fuller. Barney worked a grueling night shift at the post office, driving 60 miles each way. Betty's job handling state child welfare cases was no easier. The little free time the biracial couple had was devoted to their church and activities related to the civil rights movement. So, after 16 months of marriage, Betty and Barney saw this trip through Montreal and Niagara Falls as their delayed honeymoon. They left so impulsively, they had no time to go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. They got in their car with less than $70 in their pockets. On the last night of their three-day trip, the tired couple sipped coffee in a Vermont diner to recharge before driving back. Barney figured if they pushed through, they could beat the wind and rains from an approaching hurricane. They left the diner around 10 p.m., estimating they could reach their red-framed house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. at the latest. As they drove, strange light in the sky gave another reason to hurry. At first, it looked like a falling star, but grew larger and brighter with each mile. Barney was an avid plane watcher, and he was a World War II vet. He was sure they had nothing to worry about. It's just a satellite, he assured Betty. It probably went off course. The lights seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curving mountain road. The light zigged and then it zagged, ducking past the moon and behind the trees and mountain ridges, only to reappear moments later. Sometimes it seemed to move towards them in a game of cat and mouse. It had to be an illusion, they thought. Maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light was also moving. A curiosity overcame them. The couple pulled over at road stops and picnic turnouts to get a closer look. Through binoculars, Betty saw that the white light was really an object spinning in the air. Barney, she said to her husband, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being completely ridiculous. This is an account of the close encounter. He knew she was right. Barney had an IQ of 140, noted Fuller in his book. Barney was also a pragmatic man who wouldn't give flying saucers a second thought. This was remembered by his niece, Kathleen Martin, in her work, Captured the Benny and Barney Hill Experience. The night was too quiet for a helicopter or a commercial plane, or even a military jet with a hotshot pilot. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What was this light, and why was it toying with him? 
About 70 miles past the diner, the object hovered just above the treetops, approximately 100 feet above them. Barney abruptly stopped the car, keeping the engine running. He shoved a handgun he had hidden beneath the seat into his pocket and rushed into a dark field. He left Betty in the car. What he saw was as big as a jet, but as round as a f- and as flat as a pancake. My God, what is this thing, he recalled. This can't be real. Behind rows of windows, gray uniformed beings seemed to be looking right at him. He tried to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow he couldn't. A voice told him not to put down his binoculars. He had a startling thought. We're about to be captured. So he started yelling hysterically. He ran back to the car and barreled down the road as Betty tracked the craft, craning her head outside the car window. Without explanation, loud rhythmic beeping started from the car's trunk. The couple felt instantly drowsy and lost consciousness. They came around about two hours later, and they were 35 miles down the road. This is how they recovered their memory. Back home in Portsmouth, they tried to make sense of the night. Barney felt compelled to examine his body's lower half. Both seemed aware of a puzzling presence. In the weeks and months after, Betty, an avid reader, checked out books from the library discovering the civilian UFO group National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP. She also reported the sightings to the Air Force, worried about radiation. In coming years, with Betty suffering from disturbing dreams and Barney developing an ulcer and anxiety, the couple sought mental help. The two met with Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist and a neurologist who specialized in hypnosis, a mainstream technique at the time. Through months of weekly sessions, Simon helped the couple piece together what they think had happened. A vessel landed on the hill's car, putting them to sleep. Afterward, Grays walked them up a long ramp and into a spacecraft. Now once they were inside, the hills were separated taking turns on an examination room that had curved walls and a large light hanging from the ceiling. Each was asked to climb up on a metal table. The table was so short that Barney's legs hung over the side. During the examinations, the beings removed Betty and Barney's clothes. They plucked strands of hair, they took clippings from their nails, and they scraped their skin. Each sample was placed on a clear material, not unlike a glass slide. Needles connected to long wires probed their heads, their arms, their legs, and their spine. One large needle that was around four to six inches long was inserted into Betty's belly. This pregnancy test left her twisting in pain. Throughout, a being Barney and Betty called the leader watched from the side. After Betty's examination ended, the beings rushed back into her room, excited. They discovered that Barney's teeth could be removed. Betty laughed, explaining that Barney had dentures. They said it's a fact of human aging, and the beings struggled to understand that. Later, alone with the leader, Betty asked where the the craft had flown from, admitting she knew little about the universe. 
The being joked with her, saying, if you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in me telling you where I am. Later, under hypnosis, she drew a star map that they showed her on the ship. In 1965, the Hills story was picked up by a Boston newspaper. After that, everything changed. The quiet couple's story became the subject of a best-selling book and a movie starring James Earl Jones. The upstanding civil servants had become celebrity abductees. The model for alien abductions. The Hills weren't the first to spot a UFO or even the first to report an abduction. But their story did capture the nation's imagination and was so widely publicized, it has helped shape how we talk about alien encounters and abductions up until this very day. See, before the Hills story, alien encounters were friendly, according to Christopher Bader, a professor of sociology at California's Chapman University. Some aliens even lived on Earth and commuted back on the weekends. But once the Hill's story came out and became better known, abductions accounts shared certain characteristics. They shared characteristics like medical examinations and missing periods of time. Aliens with large heads and big eyes, dubbed greys in UFO circles, became classic sci-fi staples in personal accounts and pop culture, such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and shows like The X-Files. The Hills story, and many of those that came after, helped pave the way for new understandings of the human experience. Richard J. McNally, a Harvard psychologist, puts it in this way. The alien abduction phenomenon, in my opinion, shows how sincere, non-psychotic individuals can develop beliefs about and false memories of incredible experiences that never happened. Experts of all stripes have tried to explain why intelligent, otherwise mentally stable people came forward with these experiences. Many psychologists say sleep paralysis and hallucinations played a role. Leading questions during hypnosis, the main way most abductees unlock their stories could also have been a factor. A view into the human brain. Those who report abduction might also see the world a little differently. According to research, one of the strongest predictors of false recall is a vivid imagination. This group scores high in magical ideation and is more likely to believe in ghosts and tarot readings, says McNally. Some believe the Hill's story was simply a myth in the making, with the supernatural meetings, vulnerable protagonists, and otherworldly journeys that are often the hallmarks of legend. Many point to the stress of being an interracial couple living in a predominantly white state in a turbulent era. The year of their, hype, of their hypnosis was 1964, and it was marked by the Cold War and civil rights unrest, with numerous urban riots erupting that summer. You have a biracial couple at a time where obviously it was not easy to be a biracial couple. Look at what those aliens were. A mixture of black and white. I find that very meaningful, says Bader. Abductee stories depend on first-hand accounts, the most vulnerable form of evidence. Memories can be distorted by stress or distraction, or even completely manufactured. 
When a false memory is in place, psychologists say, the brain works to fill in the details. Psychologist Michael Shermer points to patternicity, the tendency to see patterns even when none exist, helping us to see faces in clouds or assume that one event caused another. Past experience also shapes human perception. Barney, a World War II vet, thought the head, gray, looked like Hitler and seemed menacing. Now, Betty, meanwhile, who had been excited to see the aliens, bantered with the gray, who performed her medical evaluation. That alien even agreed to give her a book to bring back to Earth with her, she said, though the other crew members would later overrule that decision. In this way, alien abduction and encounter stories have helped psychologists understand the human brain, its defects, and the weaknesses inherent in memory and first-hand accounts, according to Christopher French, a psychologist specializing in human experience related to paranormal. What we see and hear, especially under less-than-ideal observational conditions, can be heavily influenced by our prior beliefs and expectations, wrote French in The Guardian. NICAP's scientific advisor cross-examined the couple and found their account to be credible. The Air Force's Project Blue Book would ultimately dismiss the story, determining the unexplained craft could be explained by natural causes, hinting the couple hadn't seen a spacecraft, but only the planet Jupiter. For this part, psychiatrist Simon never felt the Hills made up their story. He concluded Betty had dreamed the abduction and Barney had absorbed her story, especially since many of the most vivid details match descriptions of dreams that Betty had jotted down after the event. I believe implicitly in the honesty of these people, he said, during a radio program in the 1970s. Of course, another explanation is always possible. The abduction actually occurred. The Hills stuck by their story, despite years of skeptics and detractors. Like many abductees, the couple never felt false memory or sleep paralysis explained by what they experienced. Betty became known as a voice in the UFO research and claimed she was visited multiple times in the decades to follow. That's crazy. <clears throat> Betty and Barney Hill? Yeah, one of the cool things about uh, the Betty and Barney Hill story to to even help with its credibility, when Betty Hill was under hypnosis and she she drew the uh, Zeta Reticuli star system in the star cluster in, in a diagram that she said that this is where the beings said that they were from. Now, at this point... That star cluster of Zeta Reticuli hadn't really, it hadn't been discovered yet. I think it was discovered maybe 10 to 15 years later. And even to add more credibility to it, within that star system, the, uh, the scientists that discovered this star cluster, they had always thought that it was just one planet. And they, and they were looking at her diagram and saying, oh, well, there's, there, she has two planets uh, drawn there. She must have been mistaken. But what happened was is one of the other planets was so small that during the rotation and uh, of the planets, it would get hidden behind the other planet. But then they really did discover it, that her drawing was 100% accurate to everything that they discovered 10 to 15 years later. It was even more accurate than the original discovery. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. That's crazy. So, well, we're going to keep going here. We got the unsolved mystery of the Lubbock Lights. 
Hundreds of people, including several university scientists, witnessed the flying blue-green lights in August 1951. On August 25th of 1951, it was a quiet summer night in Lubbock, Texas. That evening, a handful of scientists from Texas Technical College were hanging out. We're hanging out in the backyard of a geology pref- professor, Dr. W.I. Robinson, drinking tea and chatting about micrometeorites. It was quite the brain trust. Chemical engineering professor, Dr. A.G. Oberg, physics professor, Dr. George, and Dr. W.L. Ducker, head of the petroleum engineering department, which made the story of what they witnessed that night all the more curious. If a group had been handpicked to observe a UFO, we couldn't have picked a more technically qualified group of people, wrote U.S. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt later in his definitive 1956 casebook, The Report on UFOs. In the early 1950s, Ruppelt served as the lead investigator for Project Blue Book, the official Air Force investigation for UF sightings. And after working on its uh, precursor effort, Project Grudge, sightings of the blue-green lights kept growing. At around 9.20 p.m., the university colleagues saw something otherworldly in the expanse of Texas sky, a V-shaped formation of 15 to 30 bluish-green lights passing overhead. Stunned, but still using their trained scientific reasoning, they figured the lights would reappear. And they did, about an hour later, in a more haphazard formation. The scientists were all in agreement. They had witnessed something fantastic. But what was it? The professors weren't the only credible witnesses to the mysterious blue-green lights that night. At dusk in Albuquerque, New Mexico, about 350 miles away from Lubbock, an employee at the Atomic Energy Commission's top-secret Sandia Corporation, a man with a high-level Q security clearance, had been sitting outside with his wife. They were gazing at the night sky, commenting on how beautiful it was, when both of them were startled at the sight of a huge airplane flying swiftly and silently over their home. On the aft edge of the wings, there were six to eight pairs of soft, glowing, bluish lights. Edward Ruppelt oversaw Project Blue Book for the Air Force and monitored the investigated UFO reports. An hour or so after, according to a retired rancher from Lubbock, his wife had seen something terrifying in the night sky. Just after dark, his wife had gone outdoors to take some sheets off the clothesline. He was inside the house reading the paper. Suddenly, his wife had rushed into the house, as white as the sheet she was carrying. The reason his wife was so upset was that she had seen a large object glide swiftly and silently over the house. She said it looked like an airplane without a body. On the back edge of the wing were pairs of glowing bluish lights. By the time Ruppelt flew into Lubbock to investigate the sightings in late September, hundreds of residents had seen the lights over a two-week period. Locals investigate even snap some photos. But not everyone had waited for the government to start looking into the matter. After alerting local papers, like the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, the Texas Tech professors started their own informal investigation. In the weeks after the initial August 25th sighting, they and their friends observed the lights 12 more times. They measured the lights' angles, roughly calculated their speed, and noted that they always traveled from north to south. Armed with walkie-talkies, the scientists, Slews, and their friends formed two teams and attempted to measure the UFO altitude with little success. As the days went on, more and more Lubbock residents claimed to have seen the lights, and when the professors cross-checked these reports against what they themselves had seen and recorded, many of the facts lined up. 
Ruppelt wrote, Of course, few, if any, had recorded the phenomenon with the same level of detail as the professors. But while many observers offered incomplete or poorly expressed recollections, there's little doubt that whatever people were seeing was something real. UFO sightings are usually one-off events, but these blue-green lights were observed multiple times by hundreds of people. Plus, for many, there was physical proof. Black and white photos taken by a Texas Tech freshman named Carl Hart Jr. On August 31st, the same night an Air Force wife and her daughter claimed to have seen a UFO while driving northwest from Matador, Texas to Lubbock, Hart was keeping vigil in his bedroom, looking out for the infamous lights. It was a warm night, and his bed was pushed over next to an open window. He was looking out at the clear sky. He had been in bed for about a half hour, and when he saw a formation of lights appear in the north, cross an open patch of sky, and disappear over his house, knowing that the lights might reappear as they have done in the past, he grabbed his loaded Kodak 35, set the lens and shutter at 3.5 and one-tenth of a second, and went out into the middle of the backyard. Before long, his vigil was rewarded when the lights made a second pass, and he got two pictures. Third formation went over a few minutes later, and he got three more pictures. These hotly debated images, which show a cluster of dim lights in a V formation moving through the night sky, are the only usual visual representation of what hundreds are now claiming they saw. Was it birds or planes or the government investigator going coy? As Ruppelt began his formal investigation, he found that the lights had affected all who saw them including a hardened old man from La Mesa who had witnessed them with his wife. He broke off his story of the lights and launched into his background as the native Texan with range wars, Indian stagecoaches under his belt. Ruppelt recalled of the interview session. What he was trying to point out was that despite the range wars, Indian stagecoaches, he had been scared. His wife had been scared too. The old La Mesa man had suggested that the lights were actually plover birds, a theory to which Ruppelt would lend some credence. But just like many people Ruppelt interviewed, the old man admitted he and his wife had been looking for the lights after reading about them in the paper. This was common thread tying together many of the witnesses. One point of interest was that very few claimed to have seen the lights before reading the professor's story in the paper. But this could get back to the old question. Do people look up if they have no reason to do so? To this day, the mystery of the Lubbock Lights remains unsolved. That's a good one. I can just imagine the lady that was outside doing the laundry, uh, looking up and seeing the craft above her. I know. She was probably scared to death. Just covering the night sky. She Yeah, she was probably like, uh, you could probably visibly like see her shaking when she went inside absolutely unlike us when we were walking into the studio from outside tonight and we're looking up at the clear sky saying why doesn't a craft just come down and land right here we wanted it and here she's running with her dirty laundry scared as the dickens (laughs) all right folks let's keep it going let's do it this one is when a u.s fighter pilot got into a dog fight with a ufo The government explained the rapidly maneuvering lights as a weather balloon, experts say. There are holes to that theory. The incident described here, drawn from declassified U.S. government files, provided inspiration for episode one of history's series Project Blue Book. Excellent. 
In the words of Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, the man who investigated unidentified flying object reports in the U.S. Air Force in the early 1950s, the Gorman dogfight remains one of the classics among UFO sightings. The incident, which still lacks an airtight explanation, involved a 27-minute encounter between a veteran World War II fighter pilot named George F. Gorman and a mysterious white orb at high altitude above Fargo, North Dakota. I've never seen anything like it, Gorman told a local newspaper following the October 1st, 1948 event. If anyone else had reported such a thing, I would have thought they were crazy. Captain Ruppelt operated Project Blue Book, which continued the work of Project Sign and Project Grudge, a series of hush-hush studies conducted by the U.S. Air Force between 1947 and 1969. His mission to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and scientifically analyze UFO-related data. What makes the Gorman dogfight unique in the now declassified pages of Project Blue Book is not only the length of the encounter, but that it was recorded both on the ground and in the sky by numerous reputable sources. Chasing and being chased by a light. At the time of the incident, Gorman, a 25-year-old former fighter pilot, served as a second lieutenant in the North Dakota Air National Guard. It was this role that placed him behind the flight controls of a P-51 Mustang on October 1st, 1948, taking part in a cross-country flight alongside other National Guardmen. While the other pilots landed at Fargo's Hector Airport on that fateful evening, Gorman stayed in the air in order to get some night flying time in the cloudless conditions. Having circled his P-51 over a lighted football stadium, he was preparing to land at about 9 p.m. Advised by the control tower that the only other plane in the vicinity was a Piper Cub, which Gorman could see about 500 feet below him, he witnessed what he believed to be the taillight of another craft passing on the right, though the tower had no other object on the radar. Deciding to take a closer look at the, unified, at the unidentified object, Gorman pulled his plane up and closed to within 1,000 yards. It was about 6 to 8 inches in diameter, clear white, and completely without fuzz at the edges. He said the object in his report, It was blinking on and off. As I approached, however, the light suddenly became steady and pulled into a sharp left bank. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. Deciding to follow, Gorman tried in vain to catch up with the object, reporting that he finally got behind it at around 7,000 feet, where it made a sharp turn and headed straight for the P-51. Almost at the point of collision, Gorman dived and said the light passed over his canopy at about 500 feet before cutting sharply once more and heading back in his direction. Just as a collision seemed eminent once again, Gorman said the object shot straight up in the air in a steep climb, so steep that when he tried to intercept, his plane stalled at about 14,000 feet. The object was not seen again, and according to Gorman, he had been engaged in aerial maneuvers with it for 27 minutes by the time he brought his plane to land. 
definitive thought behind its maneuvers. Now, shaken by the encounter, the pilot went on to report he noticed no sound, no exhaust trail or odor from the object. And while he had reached speeds of up to 400 miles per hour in pursuit, he couldn't keep up with it, whatever it was. I'm convinced that there was a definite thought behind its maneuvers, Gorman said in a sworn statement to his commander. I'm further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid but not immediate. And although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speeds, it still followed a natural curve. Gorman reported blacking out temporarily due to excessive speeds that he reached in attempting to turn with the object. I'm in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe that there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the object and remain conscious. The object was not only able to outturn and outspeed my aircraft, but was able to attain a far steeper climb and was able to maintain a constant rate of climb far in excess of my aircraft. Other witnesses? Gorman wasn't the only one to see this mysterious object in the night. It was also witnessed by air traffic controllers Lloyd D. Jensen and H. E. Johnson, who were manning the Hector Airport Tower. According to Johnson, who reported seeing the Piper Cub and the UFO at the same time, the object was traveling at a high rate of speed and was fast enough to increase the spacing between itself and Gorman's fighter. Johnson described the object as appearing to be only around light, perfectly formed with no fuzzy edges or rays leaving its body. Dr. A.E. Cannon, the pilot of the Piper Cub, and his passenger also viewed the object, both in the sky and upon their return to the airport, where they immediately joined the traffic controllers in the tower. Cannon described the light as moving very swiftly, much faster than the 51. Two Civil Air Aeronautics Authority employees on the ground also reported seeing the object. Exploring the Options could it have simply been another aircraft? Taking the technology of the time into account, Dr. Travis S. Taylor, aerospace engineer and author of Introduction to Rocket Science and Engineering, believes any other aircraft would have been apparent to Gorman. Earlier that year, he points out, Chuck Yeager made his famous flight in the Bell X-1 at record-breaking speed, in which he broke the sound barrier. A craft like that would have been very obvious to a pilot in a P-51. Gorman would have known what he was looking at. The X-1 looked like an airplane, says Taylor. If he was chasing something that didn't look like a standard aircraft, and he couldn't keep up with it, either it was too far away, and he didn't realize how far away it was, or it was moving faster than a P-51 could move. The U.S. Air Force investigators from Project Sign later to become Project Grudge, and ultimately become Project Blue Book, soon arrived in Fargo, where Geiger countermeasurements of Gorman's plane revealed heightened radioactivity, though this was later explained away as a side effect of the high-altitude flying that took place. Was Gorman a kook, or maybe touched in the head by his war experiences? Government investigators found him to be a credible witness, noting that he did not make the impression of being a dreamer. He reads little 
and only serious literature. He spends 90% of his time hunting and fishing, drinks less than moderately, smokes normally, and does not do drugs. He appears to be a sincere and serious individual who was considerably puzzled by his experience and made no attempt to blow his story up. What about Cold War testing? One theory speculated by Gorman's encounter may have been with a top-secret test craft. With World War II a very recent memory, tensions in 1948 were heightened both in military and civilian circles. And as the Cold War tightened its grip on the American psyche, the U.S. government sought to boost its scientific firepower with a clandestine initiative called Operation Paperclip. You can listen to our podcast about it. Yep, we did a full episode on Paperclip. Through which it recruited former Nazi scientists, engineers, and technicians, including Warner von Braun and his V-2 rocket team. They brought him to America to boost the nation's chance in the Cold War and the looming space race. Further afield, the Soviets had begun testing the R-1 rocket, a Soviet version of the German V-2 of World War II, the same year as Gorman's encounter, raising questions of whether the object he and others saw could have been a Soviet craft or a weapon. The R-1 didn't have the range to go from wherever their launch capability was in the Soviet Union to Fargo, says Taylor. It was a dumb rocket. All the rockets at the time were projectiles. They used aerodynamics mostly to guide them. They could do slow maneuvers, but if they did a fast maneuver, they'd start tumbling apart. This one's classic, the weather balloon theory. No, we never heard this one before. Back in Fargo, after the Air Weather Service revealed it had released a lighted weather balloon 10 minutes before Gorman first saw the object, investigators pounced proclaiming the balloon the likeliest explanation of the object seen. As for the seemingly incredible movements witnessed, the report said those were due to Gorman's own maneuvers as he tried to chase the bright object. Essentially, investigators wrote, his high speed gave the balloon the appearance of moving in opposite directions as he passed by. Added to that theory, investigators noted the bright appearance of Jupiter on that date hypothesizing that Gorman had been attempting to chase the bright dot of the planet at the same time the weather balloon was in range. Oh, (laughs) jeez. The lighted weather balloon would become the official cause of the encounter in the Project Blue Book file. Wow. We were doing Project... Mogul. Mogul at the time, which was high-altitude balloons fitted with high-powered microphones that were trying to listen to see if the Soviets were doing above-ground nuclear testing, says Taylor, who points out the famous Roswell, New Mexico UFO sighting was explained away as a Project Mogul balloon. Well, they might have explained it as such, but nobody bought that. Whether Gorman was happy with the official outcome remains unknown. Maintaining his silence, he returned to the Air Force full-time, eventually retiring at the rank of lieutenant colonel in 1969. He never, smoked, he never spoke publicly about the encounter again, though, according to the Bismarck Tribune, he did tell friends he was never convinced that he had been dueling with a lighted balloon for 27 minutes. 
Gorman died in 1982. Taylor has his own theory. Possibly somebody was playing around with rocketry. But he notes, there were no known test facilities or scientists in the Fargo area when the encounter took place. All the Operation Paperclip Germans were at the missile grounds in White Sands, New Mexico, while rocket guru Robert H. Goddard had died in 1945. It makes no sense, says Taylor, that there was anything there that was man-made that they were chasing. Typical government response, weather balloon, swamp gas, flock of birds, Jupiter, Saturn, what have you, reflection of the Earth off the moon, whatever story they want to give us. Gorman's story is cool. The, the, the Project Blue Book on History Channel did a great job, kind of. Yeah, they did. If you haven't seen that, that series on, uh, on History Channel, get caught up on that because at the end of January, I think January 21st, they're going to be coming out with, uh, with their second season. 2020. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's, it's definitely, they do it, they do it a good job. Uh, I'm pretty pleased with it uh, so far. Um, the last story that we're going to jump into real quick, uh, very, very interesting. <clears throat> it could possibly be what started the whole men in black situation or the men in black being everywhere that the UFOs are. Everyone's familiar with that story. If you're this far with us, you know, the men in black. <laughs> yeah. So the UFO sightings that launched men in black mythology in all of their different incarnations, the men in black usually have one main purpose to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomenon it's possible that the story of men in black the mysterious figures that would become the subject of fascination in ufo circles and eventually break into mainstream popular culture can be traced back to one day june 27th 1947 it's quite possible that it all started with a man a boy and a dog on a boat as the story goes harold Dahl was on a conservation mission on the Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington's Maury Island, gathering logs when he saw six donut-shaped obstacles hovering about a half a mile above his boat. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son, Charles, on his arm, as well as the family dog, who didn't survive the ordeal. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. A skeptical Chrisman went back to the scene to look for himself and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They end up at a local diner, where the man was able to recount in extraordinary detail what Dahl had just experienced. What I've said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said, according to author Gray Barker's 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Dahl was told not to speak of the incident. If he did, bad things would happen. The supposed events of Maury Island have continued to fuel theories to this day, even though a U.S. government investigation deemed it a hoax after Dawn Crimson later admitted as much. In particular, the mention of the man in the black suit would evolve into a key obsession for UFO enthusiasts and spread into American pop culture, thanks to a comic book series and blockbuster movie trilogy. In all of their different incarnations, the men in black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomena. 
They almost always wear black suits and hats with dark sunglasses, drive black cars, and arrive in groups of two or three. Some describe them as one would an FBI agent, while others recall the MIB as having strange appearances, sometimes with supernatural features like glowing eyes and strange complexions. So how did we get, so what did we get from Harold Dahl, or so, pardon me, how did we get from Harold Dahl to Will Smith? The transformation of the story from the first press report to a folktale to comic book and now a film illustrates how the myth is transformed, wrote Phil Patton in the New York Times around the time the first Men in Black movie was released in 1997. That process is not unlike the children's game of telephone or what the literacy critic Harold Bloom calls innovation of misinterpretation. Sticking with the telephone analogy, the first call was made to Kenneth Arnold, a pilot who had his own alleged UFO sighting on June 24, 1947, near Mount Rainier, Washington. Though it happened three days after the Maury Island incident, it was the first widely reported sighting, and it touched off the saucer sensation. It touched off the saucer sensation, and was written in a 1949 government report on flying saucers. The report states that Dawn Crimson reached out to a Chicago newspaper magazine in an attempt to sell their story, and the magazine editor then contacted Arnold, hoping he could help verify their account. Arnold then summoned two officers of Army A-2 Intelligence to aid in the investigation of Dahl and Crimson's claim, according to the report. Now, in July of 1947, two Army A-2 Intelligence officers came to investigate. After leaving in their B-25 the next day, the plane caught fire and crashed, killing both officers and doing nothing to quiet the UFO theories. But the Maury Island story gained little notice in the UFO comedian until Barker's 1956 book, in which he wrote on his file, Maury Island Case. The large, that largely consisted of writings by Ray Palmer, the Chicago Magazine editor referred to in the government's report. Barker went on to connect the dots between the man who wore the black suit, who took Dahl to breakfast, and three similarly dressed men who allegedly visited a young UFO enthusiast named Albert K. Bender in 1953. It was Bender who almost single-handedly ushered in the plague of the men in black. Just as Arnold inaugurated the era of UFO, ufologist Nick Redfern wrote in a book, The Real Men in Black. But it was Barker's book that told Bender's story, thus introducing the concept of the MIB to a much wider audience. It still has an important legacy, said Robert Schaefer, a UFO researcher. But its publication, nobody outside a very narrow group of subscribers to Flying Saucer Newsletter had ever heard of Bender or his MIB. Barker described Bender's visitors as three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their face, three men who walk in on you and make certain demands, the men who know that you know what the saucers really are. Bender, in his own 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, described the MIB in much more frightening language. They floated about a foot off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Homburg style. Their faces were not clearly discernible, but their hats partly hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable, wrote Bender. Barker would go on to write several more books related to the paranormal and UFOs, including 1970, The Silver Bridge, which helped spread the story of another popular paranormal figure, the creature known as the Mothman, which we've done a full episode on that. Go check that one out. That'll give you some chills. 
But how much of his writing was done in good faith and has been called into question by many in the UFO research community? Barker made it clear to me that he did not take the MIB or Mothman very seriously, says Schaefer, who corresponded with Barker on occasion. However, he believed that there was still something mysterious about the whole UFO and paranormal thing. Regardless of Barker's motives, countless MIB encounters have been reported since They Knew Too Much was published nearly 60 years ago, and at least one more movie is on the way. That's crazy. I mean, reports of MIB have gone on all over the world, and and a lot of people have had. There's actually a a clip on YouTube that you can check out where they actually caught two of the men in black coming in the front door of this hotel to interrogate and uh, scare this lady. And their faces, man, they don't look like anything from this planet. They look like they're just completely bald. (sighs) They look like an extraterrestrial of some sort or some type of hybrid, hybrid, whatever you want to say they do they look pale pale as a ghost and hairless yeah and they all have like the same similar features i mean they would just be creepy i mean i look at it this way when we get visited by the men in black we've done the right things that's yep subtle beast someday will be visited by the mib yeah so well that's our take on um the encounters, some of the encounters that, that had taken place during uh, the Cold War, we couldn't go over all of them because we probably would have been here till uh, morning or <laughs> yeah. the next night. But uh, we, we hope that you uh, really enjoyed uh, some of the ones that we picked out that we found uh, a little bit more fascinating and had a little bit more uh, detail to the story. Yeah, yeah, every one of those were, were big stories. I really enjoyed them. Yeah, I really did too. And uh, I just look forward to... Uh, the next time we're here in Studio 1B. Me too, Fultz. Well, I had a lot of fun with you tonight, Steve, and I hope you had had fun, and I hope all of our listeners had fun too. Uh, be sure to keep checking out our social media on Instagram and Facebook and continue to share that page, share the pages, and uh, share our podcast with your friends and family. Let's keep this conversation going. Let's open some minds. Let's change some minds. Let's make people think a little bit differently. Let's make them think a little, hmm, that seems a little weird. Let me look into it. Because once you have somebody looking into just one of the claims that and things that we talk about here on the podcast, we got them. They're on our team. You know it. So with that, until next time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.